by the way, any of you who think that somehow uh, the stimulus acts, the three stimulus acts, and of course, if you're a Republican, you're blaming the Democrats, and if you're a Democrat, you're blaming the Republicans, somehow caused the inflation that we're having here. There were no stimulus acts in Great Britain, and the Bank of England is warning that inflation will hit 13% in the near future. It's already higher than it is here. Uh, the official July inflation rate in uh, the Euro Eurozone was 8.9%, which is basically the same level of inflation we're having. And believe me, our stimulus bills did not affect the European economy. If, if you want somebody to blame for inflation, it isn't Joe Biden or Donald Trump uh, or Congress or anything else. It's Vladimir Putin. Once more unto the breach, dear friends. Else fill the ball up with our English dead. Good morning, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, and welcome to a, another exciting episode of The Personal Wealth Coach, starring Jake and Jeff McClure. McClure. Uh, we are here to talk to you today about things financial, the economy, uh, whether or not um, inflation exists, and other things that you should probably already know. Or maybe don't. It only exists in our mind. Only in our mind. Right. Uh, anyway, this is the Personal Wealth Coach, uh, and we are a not just a radio program. We're also required to say that we, the two principals in a SEC-registered investment advisory firm, are the co-hosts. Why are we supposed to tell you that? Well, because the SEC needs you to know that if we say something stupid, no, not stupid. We're going to say some stupid stuff. Some illegal stuff on the air about uh, how the market works or, or things like that. You should tell the SEC, which is a very clear statement that they don't approve us in any way except that we register through the... Ooh, that was a good segue. I like that. And uh, just because we're registered with them to offer investment advice doesn't mean we can do that on the air because that'd be one of those things you could complain about because there's no privacy on the air. And investment advice is supposed to be tailored specifically to the persons given to, not given broadly. So what are we doing? Oh, we're just jabbering. We're just talking words, nothing advisory at all. It's educational. That makes, that, that makes the unwarranted assumption that we know what we're doing. Oh, yes. Uh, who right. would warrant that? Which leads us to the next I mean. warranty guarantees statement, which is... The information we present on this informational educational radio program has been obtained from sources we deem to be reliable. But we make no warranty or guarantee as to the accuracy or completeness of said information. Beep. Very nicely done. Right. Was that a recording? Beep. Yes. That, that was a recording. It was in my brain. It was a recording in my brain. It's a recording now because we record the episodes, but... Oh. So is it episodic? It, it, it is episodic in some ways. Mm, good. Yeah. We have a question from Inquisitor John. Thank you, John, very much. Uh, we, your monetary cycle question. Yes, and you can give us more questions at either Jeff at TPWC.com and Jake at TPWC.com, preferably both. Yes. John's got a question about the monetary cycle. And he's, as is tradition, he has a picture of the Wall Street Journal, a, a phone digital picture of the paper Wall Street Journal, which has been circled and uh, underlined in specific areas. And his question is, 
what will the second half of the cycle look like? Um, it's from the article, An Inflated Sense of Success, and it's kind of a book review on Ben Bernanke's uh, 21st Century Monetary Policy. Um, and there's a section of it where he says, inflation and the Fed's belated scramble to raise rates and scale back on quantitative easing have revealed that we are still only in the middle of a monetary cycle that began around 2007 or 8 during the panic. What is a monetary cycle? Well, a monetary cycle is the interest rate lowering and rising uh, in the market. So what is the cost of money, basically? If you want to go borrow something... What does it cost you to borrow it? And if you think about this in a really big picture setting, you, 1980s, the early 1980s, we had extreme double-digit interest rates, um, 24% on a mortgage. Yes, that was real. That was a real mortgage and somebody that had decent credit. Um, it was very, very short. It was a very short period that it was that high, but it existed. And then we came all the way down to 2.5% being decent credit just a few months ago. You could have, a few months ago, about a year ago, you could have gotten a loan at 2.5%. There's a lot of difference between 24% and 2.5%. So that's a longer-term loan cycle where we expect interest rates to be rising now. Well, on the monetary policy side, on the money, what it costs you just to spend money, what's the inflation rate look like? How are we fighting it? That cycle has other things that cause it to shift. The, the panic of 2007 and 8 was a lot of people not paying their loans back. That makes money just get destroyed in and that's a literal term it is destroyed no money exists where there was money a bank had on a balance sheet a loan that they had to erase that's how we keep money it's mostly on electronic balance sheets when you erase it it's a real thing money was being destroyed and the federal reserve stepped in and printed a bunch of money not at the mint not the paper stuff but by giving out loans and paying interest on, on deposits in reverse. So you could get a loan from the Federal Reserve and deposit it and make a profit on the round trip if you were a bank. They were literally giving money to banks so that the banks could replace the money they lost. Now, they did a lot of other stuff too. They bought bonds on the open market, both mortgage-backed securities, so mortgages, uh, but mortgages that have been repackaged in big, big mixed groups so that it's not just your mortgage, it's about 10,000 mortgages all mixed together in a stew pot with nothing else added. So it's not really a good stew, it's just one ingredient. But you know what I'm saying. So this package is sitting out there, that, that's being purchased by the Federal Reserve back, back at the, in the panic time period. Why? Well, because banks were locked up, they didn't have any cash on hand. They had a bunch of mortgages, but they didn't know what the mortgages were worth, so they couldn't make any loans. That was the freeze. Well, the Federal Reserve stepped in and started buying those things and actually literally putting money in the pockets of the banks. Wait, that's not literal. Banks don't have pockets. Uh, you, get, you get what I'm saying. The banks then have a bunch of money that they can loan out 
and they don't have to charge very much interest rate on it because they're getting money hand over fist from the Fed. So they've got some reserve requirements so they don't go under. They got to hold cash on hand, but there's enough cash and it's kind of building. The Federal Reserve dumped in, in one month, it dumped half a trillion dollars into the mortgage-backed securities market during the crisis. Just, here you go, guys, we're buying all these things from you banks, and the banks suddenly had half a trillion dollars in their, on their balance sheets that was money and not a long-term uh, vehicle. So they could loan it, or they could invest it again. Now, over time since then, we, interest rates have started up, and then come back down as we had a little threat of a, of a slowdown here or there. But we've been in a very easy part of what would be considered a long-term cycle. It's been very easy to get loans. Interest rates have been very low. And that's caused the housing market prices to come way up because they're less expensive with a low interest rate loan. Well, now we're entering the next part of that cycle. And this is the question. What's the second half of the cycle look like? It's a tightening cycle where interest rates go up for quite a good time, uh, making it more expensive to gather money. How long will that last? That's a good question. We've, we've, <laughs> nobody knows that answer. Um, the short-term monetary cycles go anywhere from four years to, to 20 years long. So this is a pretty normal cycle. We're kind of right in the middle of that. Um, where's some four-year ones? In the early 90s, we had a series of cycles where interest rates came down and then went up and then came down and then went up. It was really easy to see the cycles there. Um, and, and it caused the market to act a little bit goofy. When we have these longer, more pronounced cycles where, or less pronounced cycles where the Federal Reserve is giving us a real clue on what they're about to do regularly, it does tend to calm the markets, which is one of the jobs of the Federal Reserve. So this is a weird, the, 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 they got given a job of helping to calm the markets um, right after the Great Recession. So we don't know what that looks like. And it kind of looks like what we've been talking about most of this hour of they're using a different kind of tool to say, hey, what happens if we invert the 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 interest rates rather than you guys and slow your spending down a little bit and then we can uninvert it too. So it, it looks different this time than usual. They've got some other tools and some other responsibilities that they didn't have in the last interest rate, the, in, the last monetary cycle. From my perspective, it's fascinating. From most people's perspective, it's very boring. <laughs> Do you have something to add to that? I think you covered it very well. Uh, it, it's very, wow. very thickly covered. I'm glad I'm wearing my boots. It's, I think one of the things that he mentioned in the, in the question with the, by the way, the, the, as you said, the, the article is a book review. We're in some long-term cycles. I mentioned earlier that we are in a secular bull market. Um, in looking at the world, there are some very long-term cycles underway. And some of them are pretty scary and some of them are pretty benign. One of the things I think is really important to keep our eye on at this point, and we mentioned this in the newsletter, Europe is sliding into recession. Goldman Sachs, which generally has got a pretty good handle on this, says that it's already in recession. By the way, any of you who think that somehow uh, the stimulus acts, the three stimulus acts, and of course, if you're a Republican, you're blaming the Democrats, and if you're a Democrat, you're blaming the Republicans. 
somehow caused the inflation that we're having here. There were no stimulus acts in Great Britain. And the Bank of England is warning that inflation will hit 13% in the near future. It's already higher than it is here. Uh, the official July inflation rate in uh, the Euro Eurozone was 8.9%, which is basically the same level of inflation we're having. And believe me, our stimulus bills did not affect the European economy. If, if you want somebody to blame for inflation, it isn't Joe Biden or Donald Trump uh, or Congress or anything else. It's Vladimir Putin. Um, and that's that's important to recognize. It's important to recognize that they're slipping into recession in Europe with high inflation. In the United States, we have had high inflation. Remember that when you see the consumer price index, it's looking back a full year. It's a lagging indicator. Uh, the evidence that we're seeing indicates that inflation is leveling off. Um, I think by next year, probably inflation will no longer be a big threat on our horizon. Uh, I think that the Fed will back off. I think probably if we have a recession, it'll be extremely minor. What does that say to you as an investor or whatever it is that you are, if you're listening? It means just hang in there. It ain't that bad. Uh, you sell ads in and newspapers and things like that uh, by proclaiming the world's coming to an end. And it ain't. Uh, there are some things to worry about, and it has nothing to do with things we've been talking about so far. Yeah. So when we're talking about what causes inflation to come back to reality, um, this is another segue. Last week, we did a best of program, though. How do you do the best of a mud puddle? Hmm. Mm. But we did. We did a best don't of the mud. Yeah, that we, we keep it um, as clear and um, translucent as possible for a mud puddle. Um, but we had a question then that fits very nicely into this from Inquisitor John again. And we've got another question from him for this week as well. So I want to hit this. Uh, his question is about, do we have an upcoming, upcoming glut in chips? Uh, the article in question, China makes big bets on basic chips. They're making a bunch of plants. There's 31 major semiconductor plants China's got under construction right now. Um, there's 19 happening in Taiwan and 12 in the United States. Just as a side note, if you want to do some math here, that means that the Chinese on the mainland are making 31 semiconductor plants and the Americans and the Taiwanese together are making 31 semiconductor plants. It's an interesting number and it's probably not coincidental on the Chinese side. So whether or not they're doing it as well as the rest of the world is, is a question, but they are keeping up. Okay, so what is it, how is this a segue from inflation? There's a lot of money being spent right now. We were talking about capital expenditures. A lot of money being spent fixing supply chains. And by fixing them, a lot of times that means scrapping them and restarting them and making them better from that end. And that takes a while. One of those is the fact that we've got so many chip plants coming online in the United States. This is where we actually use them. Supply chain issues get a lot shorter when the chip is next door than when the chip is on the other side of the planet. It's a kind of a nice statement there. So our supply chains are getting better. That's one of the major issues in inflation this time around. It isn't so much the money monetary supply, although we've got a lot of it. 
It's the fact that we've had such a weird demand supply shift based on the pandemic and then follow it. Well, and then some more pandemic and then more pandemic and then a war in Ukraine. So all of this has made our supply chains all weird. And we're investing a bunch of money to be able to make the things that are the most expensive things right now cheaper because those are the things people want to sell the most. It's kind of cool. Hey, these are the most expensive. Let's sell those. Let's make more of them. Well, that causes the price to come down. And this is part of a cycle as well. So when we look at our inflationary tendencies right now, as you just said, we're probably already at or just behind the peak in the inflation in the United States. Because I'm seeing a lot of stuff hitting the market. I'm seeing a lot of inventory rise. And this question is an upcoming glut in chips. Absolutely. This is one of the amazing things about innovation is that the cheaper things are, the more likely you are to use them. There's this big heat wave going on in Europe. Man, it sounds like I just changed the subject, doesn't it? They don't have air conditioning in most of Germany. They just don't have it. So why? When you ask a German, they say, well, that's very expensive. And that makes sense. Energy prices are up as well, but they don't have it. And here we have it. And we kind of use it all the time in the places that we need it. It's just an accepted part. Yes, and it's expensive, but the prices come way down because so many of us are using it. And when you have enough of a demand, people find a way to sell you the thing that you want. And a lot of people start to compete for that niche eventually. That causes prices to come down. When you have 62 major chip manufacturers, com manufacturers coming online in the next two years, that's m massive. That is, that is a, such a major leap ahead in the number of major semiconductor plants that it, it, there's no point in history that we've seen that kind of increase in, in supply. Well, what's that going to do to prices? It's, it's, this is rocket surgery, I understand, but we can do it. Uh, you use the scalpel on the red wire. Supply goes up, demand stays constant, then price goes down. But demand's going up too. Everything's getting chips in it. Well, I think demand's going up slower than this massive leap in supply. So we're going to see some price alleviation there. I just like to say alleviation sometimes. Because well, actually, the word that I saw used was disinflationary. Yes, but that's, they're just. I like that word. They're just it dissing mean, it. It is, it is so complicated. It really doesn't mean anything, but it does mean that we need to break for commercials. Yeah. You, when you get a tire puncture. That's disinflationary. It's disinflationary, too. Right, yeah, exactly. And, and we could go into a long discussion on the inflation and in tire prices while you're inflating your tires. Okay, there's and we got another question that popped in while we were out there from Roger. Uh, we've got another. We've got another question from John, but we'll hit. Uh, and this was about uh, the TSP, the Thrift Savings Plan uh, for federal employees. It's kind of, in a very loose way, their version of a four hundred one k. But before we get to that one, Roger just sent us a question, and it says uh, the subject line is new law to promote domestic chip manufacture. In the past, you mentioned that federal subsidy of solar panels stifled innovation in that product. While I doubt the new law to increase domestic chip production is promoting a particular chip, 
is it possible it will end up subsidizing obsolete technology? Yes, it is possible. It is designed a little bit smarter than some of the other subsidy bills um, it, because it's based on strategic value rather than on the idea of climate impact. Strategic value tends to have a much more clearly defined goal. Hey, we need to make chips so we're not invaded. That tends to put an effort on the research end of the funding. And that's what you'll see in this law. It's subsidizing research. Does that mean that the research will all be good? Well, we've all seen studies funded by the U.S. government. That doesn't necessarily mean that the research was something that needed to be done. But some good research is going to be done on this subject. This is kind of the best known way for a government to be involved in building um, a a better product. And this goes all all the way back to the Royal Society of the United Kingdom where where a bunch of scientists were put together and said, hey, we're going to give you money to think about stuff. Here you go. And you can talk about waste, and a lot of the stuff they studied was really dumb, like whether or not they could make uh, a frog uh, turn lead into gold. But if you didn't know you couldn't, how do you know you can't? And that's kind of the point. There's a lot of stuff like that that happened, but at the same time, the fact that you have the ability to calculate seconds in a watch was funded by this. Um, And that's helped a lot of things. So there's a lot that comes from research funding. I I don't think there's any danger of um, an overabundance of chips at this point, very frankly. The reason I say that is the rate at which computer chips are being included in almost everything you buy right down to clothing is accelerating at an amazing uh, exponential speed. Uh, whether we like it or not, the world is going smart. Uh, the products are going smart. Uh, the, I mean, used to be a telephone. I'm old enough to know when telephones used to be. That's what you heard when you dialed the telephone. Well, you're actually older than that. You can go ahead and say what it sounded like to dial. Yes. What was the name of the operator that you asked to make the call for you? Yes, I I knew the name when I was a kid of the operator in our town. And if I wanted to find my grandmother, I would ask, I'd pick up the phone and she would say number please. And I would say, this is Jeff. I want to find my grandma or I want to find mama Maddie. I would say, and she would say, she's in the, she's in the hairdressers right now getting her hair done. Would you like me to ring them? I mean, that's where we were. And so this when, is smart technology. We've come full circle. Now you yeah, just ask are. your phone to get a hold of who, whomever yep. you need by right. just saying, call grandma. And that's the ability to program the chips has exceeded the ability to make the chips. So we're, it's kind of like the government effectively sponsored the making of automobiles. I don't know if people realize that. Yeah. When they changed the tax laws to allow businesses to pay lower taxes if they made more stuff. And it's worked in the past. Rural electrification was a government-sponsored program that helped tremendously. Uh, Telephone systems going out into the rural areas was sponsored by the government. There are some places where the government rightfully says, in order to be competitive in the real world, we need to let some industries go faster. Yeah. So I think it's appropriate. On the solar panel side of things, the government said, 
we will give you money back on your taxes if you buy a solar panel. Did it say if you buy an efficient solar panel, if these mm-hmm. solar panels are getting better over the years? This is not money going to the solar panel companies except that they can charge $10,000 more than they charged before. They don't have to research. People are going to buy it because they've got this extra money for buying it. And that's mm-hmm. the issue with subsidies that are just based on you buy the thing, you get a subsidy. That's a very good short-term issue, but they tend to turn into long-term issues and it really distorted our photovoltaic industry for about 25 years. Well, it actually right now would not be a bad idea since we're not building new power plants in Texas. Yeah, We need more solar generation capacity because right. when the sun that- is, if you'll notice when, when uh, the electric distribution system says you should cut back on your electric usage is just when the sun is the brightest right so solar panels on people's roofs is probably a pretty good idea right so as a short term to say hey our power grid needs some help we're going to raise the subsidies right now for the next six months if you buy solar panels well that makes sense as a short term but that kind of subsidy when it stays long term stifles innovation if you've got a subsidy that says, hey, we're going to help you with your research and the research still belongs to you, but we're going to give you some money for that as either a grant or as a low interest rate loan, then that causes research in that specific area. That's how we've stayed ahead militarily from the rest of the world. And if you doubt that we're ahead militarily, just watch what the Russians are doing right now. And wow, um, they are nothing close to the quality that we have in our armed forces and our equipment and our discipline. And that comes from the right focused research type spending. The VA does a lot of that and the Department of Defense does a lot of that. When they sponsor directly funding to veteran-owned research facilities, that's a very stimulating uh, thing for research. Anyway, that's, that's the big... That's the big long answer to federal subsidies can be good, but they can also be bad. And it really depends on whether it looks like it's, oh, this is an easy thing. We'll just, you know, everybody should use solar. So we're going to give you some money to do it. Um, That's temporary. And we're about out of time. This is the Personal Wealth Coach with Jeff and Jake McClure. If you would like to talk to us off the air, we actually give individually, uh, individually crafted and customized advice based on what people are trying to achieve. That's generally and portfolio management. And portfolio management. And that's generally for people with higher net worths, but we make exceptions occasionally. Um, and so you can contact us locally, voicemail available during the weekend, but actual real live people, no phone tree during the week at? 254-947-1111. You can reach that line tool free at 1-800-914-7526. That's 800 800- 914 plan. And I think it's important to note that we're an independent fiduciary firm. We don't work for a corporation. We only work for our clients. Right. Exactly. Uh, You can go to our webpage, thepersonalwealthcoach.com or tpwc.com. There's a contact form. You can use emails, Jeff or Jake at tpwc.com. There are uh, recordings of the radio program going back years, newsletters going back decades. uh, And you can find us wherever podcasts are given Um, Thank you very much for listening on a nice Saturday morning. And until next week, this has been The Personal Wealth Coach.